And when Mr. Fairman asked me to share with you how the Lord has moved in my own life, I felt I best restrict myself to some very definite segments of activity, lest I get into areas that most of you know a great deal more about than I do. What I'd like to talk to you about this evening, therefore, is some of the doors that the Lord has opened to me over the years in talking to people who are considered by the world to be knowledgeable in the field of science. Winners of the Nobel Prize, heads of research institutions in various parts of the world, and authorities, particularly in the field of astronomy, who I had the opportunity to meet during eclipse expeditions. Through my students, about 10 years ago, I got interested in following the sun to wherever you have to go in the world to see it totally eclipsed. A total eclipse of the sun is one of the most awesome experiences the Lord has ever provided mankind. Unfortunately, not very many people <coughs> ever see one because you have to go to a very narrow place in the world where the sun is totally covered. It did not happen here since 1925, and it will not happen again in New York till 2024. But somewhere in the world, about every 15 months, it happens in a very narrow strip of land. The next one will take place in Siberia, and I was just looking at this map. We're going to set up our camp here in Bratsk. Well, actually, the Russians will set up the camp because they tell us where we can go and where we cannot go, and they have restricted the number of people who can come to that site from around the world to 800. And we were very fortunate through the agency I work with in Belfort, Mr. Gunter Jansen, to be able to get 30 of those 800 worldwide. And it will be announced probably next week in Newsday that we're going to take a maximum of 30 people to Bratsk near the Mongolian border to see the sun totally covered. And it is on those occasions when the sun gets dark at noonday and the stars come out and animals react in strange fashions and birds come home to roost and the cows come in to be milked and so on and then out again in a few minutes after it gets bright that people really think about the universe and the insufficiency of man more directly than they do at other times. In fact, I would almost say that during those magical moments it is hard to find an atheist standing there, who will say, well, we're in control of everything when things get dark and you realize that we are not really in control, that we're rather spectators in this grand universe that the Lord has provided for us. All we can ever really do, and that is true of all scientists in the world, and it is even true of Dr. Carl Sagan, who has just finished this grand series, Cosmos, in which he talks about the millions and billions of years and miles that he feels are involved in this cosmos. All we can ever do is to try to find out how God put it together. And one thing I learned in talking to scientists around the world <laughs> is that we will never really on this earth know how it is put together. We'll get closer and closer perhaps. Sometimes we make guesses that get farther and farther away. But we can always only guess at it. We will never really know, absolutely for sure, how anything in God's universe works. We call it a black box. I brought along a little example. We call it a black box as a universe of ours. Like a Christmas present that the Lord has provided for us, that we shake 
and snip as children do at Christmas time and rattle and heft for a week or two ahead of time to see can they tell what's in there, this gift from their parents. Just so we rattle and shake and probe with x-rays and neutrons and neutrinos and what have you what this universe is like. As a little example for my classes, I pass this object around as I'm going to do this evening. All I want you to do is to look at it and make a guess later when we get to the guessing period of this presentation and tell me what you think it is. And we'll see by your guesses more about you than about what it really is. And so it is with scientists. You can tell more about the scientists than about the universe when you listen to this series. Because we can never really completely divorce ourselves from our own personalities. We can never be totally objective. A scientist always prides himself in his objectivity. And authors of science textbooks will say this is an objective scientific presentation. There is no such thing. Absolutely, it is impossible to divorce your thinking from what you really are. Now, to make sure that the statement I just made about scientists in the universe is correct, I've tried over the last 10 or 20 years, with God's help and with liberal funds from all kinds of people who are interested in carrying this work forward, to talk to the people who are considered the authorities in various sciences. And as I was contemplating where in the world to go to find these people and where to get the money to talk to them, a Christian layman came forward and told me he would like me to go wherever I feel is necessary for as long as I think it is necessary and talk to whomever I think I should at his expense. And then when we come back from this journey, he said, let's put it in book form. Now where do you go when you get a blank check like that? And where do you start looking for people? <coughs> So I went to the library and found the book of the world scientists, up-to-date book. It's called the Book of Knowledge, or the Book of Learning, rather. Book of Knowledge is Book of Learning. And in there are listed the faculties of the universities of the world, the Nobel Prize winners in chemistry, physics, and physiology. And I made a list of them, and I wrote to each one, well, not each one, but a select group at random, and told them only one thing. I want to come and ask you about God. And to my great surprise, the answer to the first 100 letters of this kind to 13 countries was 50% of them come. Now, when you make surveys or polls of any kind in this country or elsewhere, a 50% return, affirmatively speaking, is almost unheard of. In fact, the other 50, in many cases, said, we wish we could accommodate you, but we'll be out of the country at that time, and so on. So I started with letters of welcome from 50 people in various countries. And I asked them all to begin with the same question. What is science? Next, what are the limits of science? What is there besides science? Is there more knowledge that science can never attain? What is your own faith? What do you think about miracles? Do they occur in your field and in the world today? And so on. A standard number of questions in which I try to keep my own feelings and faith 
away from what the scientist is saying to get a neutral and objective, as much as that is possible, background of that particular person. The result of those many, many hours of taped interviews were finally put together in the little volume that I have with me this evening called The God of Science. And I'd like to share some of the experiences that are recorded here, along with others that have taken place since this time, and that I'm now incorporating into what will eventually be another edition. Who were some of these people? What do they say about the role of God in the universe today and in their own lives? Will we eventually answer all questions with the scientific method, or is there a limit somewhere? First of all, I want to give a little idea of where science is today, as I learned to know it from these people. What are the frontiers? in our scientific world. What are scientists working on that we did not know before, and where are we going in that search? I'd like to pick three examples of where the frontiers are. First of all, in the area of astronomy, which is my very favorite. Astronomers today, by and large, believe that the universe started with a big explosion, that it is expanding, <laughs> and that is expanding indefinitely and will not contract again and be reborn. This theory is called the theory of the Big Bang. It means that the universe had a beginning. We no longer believe that the universe is eternal, as astronomers once, some of them at least, thought it was. That God is not necessary, for example, rather that the universe is eternal and therefore we don't need a God. Astronomers today are converging on the theory that the universe began. It began with an explosion. An act of creation is gradually expanding and will die eventually in a whimper. Beginning with a bang and ending with a whimper is how they put it. Of course, that doesn't say what will happen to our Earth. That's the total universe picture. How big is this explosion? How far out has it gone? since the beginning, and when was the beginning? There is where the disagreements are. This week in the Hilton Hotel in New York City, there's a convention of physicists and astronomers. I intend to spend the day there tomorrow to see what the new theories are. And I emphasize the word theory, because that's as far as it will ever go. There will never be, and astronomers and scientists around the world tell you this, there will never be absolute truth about astronomy or about any other science. All it can ever be is an educated guess. And the next guess may be diametrically opposed to the last one. Don't let textbooks fool you in this regard. Textbooks in many cases are notorious in their presentation of science as a book of facts. Science is not a book of facts. Science is a search for the truth. But the truth is never there. It's only a guess. Last year, the guess was that the universe, among many astronomers, was 18 billion years old. That doesn't mean that the person who says that believes it. That means that's his guess. A scientist does not believe in a theory. He proposes a theory. 
My co-author, Dr. Hopper, when we were sitting and writing the chapter in our astronomy text on the beginnings of the universe, we faced the question of which theory of the many theories about the beginnings should we present. And Dr. Hopper said, it doesn't really matter how many we present, because there are more theories than there are astronomers. I said, Doc, you're a little bit heavy there. How can there be more theories than astronomers? He said, I have two. I have two. You see, a theory is a working model. The purpose of a theory is to get you to think, not to get you to believe. I remember coming out here to interview Sir Fred Hoyle when he was a guest professor at Stony Brook University. Fred Hoyle is probably the world's leading cosmologist. A cosmologist is a person who makes up theories of what the universe looks like. And I called him on the telephone and said, Dr. Hoyle, I'd like to come and talk to you about God. And he said, come right in. And I walked into his office, and there were students standing there, and they looked at me in great awe. And they said, you are going to talk to Dr. Hoyle? Should we know you? He said, of course you should know me. Who are you? How did you get in there to see Dr. Fred Hoyle? I said, I called him on the telephone. He said, we've been trying to see him. What did you say to him? I said, I said to him, I want to talk to you about God. That's a magic key. I did the same thing with Carl Sagan. I called him at Cornell University. I said, I'd like to come and talk to you about God. And he said, come on in. And his secretary said the same thing. I don't understand how you got in there because he's talking to Johnny Carson, he's busy here, he's writing a book, he's doing TV. How did you get in? I said, I said I wanted to talk to him about God. How easy and how frightened I was before. How can I approach these awesome people? They're not awesome when it comes to their own soul, you see. One man told me, I am talking to you about God, and I want you to know, and this is in Germany, that I have not given an interview for 20 years to any newspaper man or interviewer because I'm always misrepresented. But you're the first person ever to ask me what I believe about God. He was a personal and longtime friend of Albert Einstein, Max Born, just before he died. It's the magic key, man, to talk to a person about God. It seems that God himself paves the way, opens the door, and we're so timid about it. We say, my, they will think it's so unimportant, you know, and so unscientific. Well, back to Fred Hoyle. Hoyle said to me, my theory about the universe, and I don't know if you've ever heard this term before, is the steady state. Steady state means the universe had no beginning and no end. It always was and always will be. But, he told me, I don't believe my theory anymore. You don't believe your theory anymore? Why not? Because the evidence points in another direction. The evidence, he said, now points in the direction that the universe began with an explosion. So I have to discard my theory, he said, and come up with a new one. That's the mark of a scientist person who can discard his own ideas, come up with another one, but never really believe it. That takes humility, 
that takes devotion to the cause, and it's something that a great many people cannot do. And that's why only a few become really successful research scientists. Last December, just a year ago, another theory was expounded that the universe is not 18 billion years old, but only nine. You can't do that very often, or you're down to zero. How old is it really, you see? Well, theories can never tell us. No scientist can ever tell us. Because the most it can do is to tell us what we can see in the universe by rattling it, poking it a certain number of times. In science today, we don't talk about laws anymore. The word law in the science textbook is becoming old-fashioned. We rather talk about probabilities. What is a probability? If I drop an object on the table and it falls down, we used to say in the old days, that's because of the law of gravity. Well, there is no law of gravity, you see. There is nothing in the universe that says it has to fall down. If a person out there came in and said, he just dropped something and it fell up, what would we do? Would we believe him? Would we say he's a liar and he didn't see that? Because we're so used to this law of down. Well, why should it have to fall down? One scientist in Oslo told me, if a person said that, he'd have to write it down as an observation and keep it in his file. But at the same time, he would also have to contemplate the idea that there are probably more or a greater percentage of crazy people than up-falling objects. And that maybe the probability that he's lying is greater than the probability that it fell up. See how frustrating that is. <laughs> how frustrating. And yet we keep talking about scientific evidence. All the scientists I spoke to said, make sure to tell the people that science has limits. And that one of the limits is that it is never certain. It is never absolute. It is only as certain as the number of observations or experiments that you perform, or that someone else reported. And since you can never do an infinite number of observations on anything, no scientific conclusion is ever absolutely certain. That's important to something we'll say later about the relationship between science and faith and our Christian beliefs. It's never certain, and you don't believe it. You study it. It doesn't matter what you think about an observation what your feelings or beliefs are. It either is so or it isn't, you see. You see something happen, and that's how it is. Whether you like it or not, it has nothing to do with belief. How old is the universe? We'll never know on this side of heaven. We will only be able to observe and to make guesses at it. How big is the universe? We'll never know for sure. We'll have guesses. There may be another guess in a research paper tomorrow that maybe it's really not nine billion light years at all. Maybe it's only four. 
Then you look at the evidence. How do they get at the four? What is the basis for saying that it's four? How do we even know that it's expanding? What is the basis for that piece of research? That is what a scientist and a student of science should be concerned with, not whether he believes it or not. Well, let's take another example. Let's go into the area of chemistry and physics, from the very large of the universe to the very small. What is everything made of? When I went to high school, it was neutrons, protons, and electrons. No more. Now we're talking about 180 or 90 different materials called baryons, neutrinos, anti-this, anti-that, mesons, new mesons, high mesons, things that we can't even imagine. And now the theory has it that all these 180 or 90 are in turn made of something smaller called quarks. Quarks. The fellow who made that word up in California, Dr. Murray Galman, was asked, where did you come up with that word, quark? Nobody ever even saw him have him. Now, what is this quark? He said, I woke up one Sunday afternoon from a nap, and I thought that word up. Quark. Sounded nice, so I wrote it down. <laughs> well, since then, I found out from the of Germany that quark in Germany is cottage cheese. <laughs> Actually, a good German would disagree because I asked one, he said, no, it's not cottage cheese, that's Schluter case, but quark, that's quark. So I bought some in a supermarket there one evening and ate it for a snack at midnight, and by mistake, I got horseradish quark. There are different flavors, but the universe is all cottage cheese, I don't know. Well, what is a quark? Supposedly, a quark has a two-thirds charge. You have one like an electron, a proton, two-thirds. Already, we're up to 18 kinds of quarks. And I haven't seen one yet. They have very interesting names. Up quark, down quark, charmed quark, colored quark, true quark. See, this has nothing to do with the words true, charm, up, down, and color. It's just words. In fact, I remember Earl Lane, my good friend, the science writer for Newsday, did an article on quarks. Part two of the paper, the front page, was all quarks. And he had only six down there. So I, I called, I said, Earl, there are 18. He said, you're the only guy ever calls when I do anything on physics, and here I put six. I thought that was pretty good. He said, nobody will care. He said, six is plenty. And the interesting thing about his article on quarks, the true quark had a picture of Richard Nixon inside. <laughs> <laughs> now, if ever there was an indication that we shouldn't believe anything about quarks, <laughs> that was it. Quarks, of course, come very close to home for us here in Suffolk County because up here at Brookhaven National Laboratory, they are building the world's most powerful atom smasher, 15 times more powerful than anything we've had previously, the fine quark. It will be done in 1984 at a cost of, I understand lately, of about $400 million. Jeez. That comes to how much per quark? <laughs> it will use more electric energy than anything on Long Island except the railroad. To smash atoms to see if quarks come out. <laughs> Our 
quarks are in, <coughs> are they really there? I have a theory that the more powerful the machine and the more money we spend building them, the more particles God makes for us to look at. He doesn't want us to be disappointed. So if we're looking for quarks, we'll have quarks. If we want to see stars 19 billion light years away, he'll make a few and say, there you are. And that's a theory you can never disprove, because how can you tell me that was there before when you haven't seen it? That's not altogether my theory, by the way. That has come up in physics conventions, and it's called the democracy of particles idea. That whatever you want, you vote for it, and God will make it. Nice. But is it the truth? Truth? We'll never find it, remember. And besides, as St. Paul said, everything that appears, and I think this is really a very subatomic Bible passage, everything that appears is made out of things you cannot see. What does that mean? I'm not sure. But I think it could mean that everything we look at and think is real is really not there at all, not in a physical sense. That everything that feels solid is really just a manifestation of energy in such a way that we think it's there. Because when we finally get down to the smallest particles, they're not real at all. They're not particles. They're not substances. They're only waves of energy. The electron, I'm told, is not a particle at all. It's just a wave. So could it be that God took some of his energy and said, here is a form of it that you can see. And here you are. I'll make you into something other people can see. And we're all just lumpy waves. And that the whole universe is just a manifestation of God's energy. One man I interviewed was what is considered to be the greatest chemistry professor in the world, Dr. Hubert Elliot at Princeton University. And he told me, and he's a profound Christian, he teaches Sunday school in the Christian church in Princeton, and he says, you'd be surprised how many Christian professors there are on this campus that has the reputation of being such a humanist place. We have get-togethers of Christian professors and students, he said. And I tell my students on the first day of class that the universe, he said, is made of matter, energy, and blurps. Blurps. And they scratch their heads and say, blurps, we better write this down, because we have a quiz. Blurps. But what is it? Blurps. And they'll say to Elie, would you give us a definition of these so we can understand it better? And he said, well, I'll tell you. Matter and energy you know, but blurps haven't been discovered yet. But when they are, and I'm dead and gone, you're going to get together and say how wise that Elie was who predicted the blurps. <laughs> but if I get up here and say matter and energy, that's all there is, and they discover blurps, then you'll say in your reunions that dummy Elie, dead and gone, never knew about blurps and thought he was so smart. The open mind, you see, is the Christian attitude toward our universe. The open mind toward new information and toward getting closer and closer, but being satisfied 
that we will always see through a glass darkly. Never absolutely what is there. One other example of where scientific research is today. I've told you the Big Bang is where astronomers are. The machine at Brookhaven, which by the way is called Isabel, is where physics is at. Isabel means intersection storage accelerator, and the bell means for beautiful bell. I asked one guy there, what is so beautiful about this? And he said, well, the information that we're going to achieve is just beautiful. That's why we call it bell. The last example I want to give of where science is at before we say a few words of what the scientists and where they're at is in the field of biology. What is the frontier of knowledge when it comes to the human body and brain? The man who got the Nobel Prize for doing research on brain connection, on the synapse, which is the place where two nerves come together but never really touch, but an electric current jumps across, is Sir John Eccles. I heard Sir John Eccles address a Nobel conference where there were assembled some 30 Nobel Prize winners in science. And he told this assembled group and some 4,000 observers that the real frontier of knowledge today is the distinction between the brain and the mind. Now, what does that mean? Eccles said, the brain is the physical thing in our head. The mind is what we really are. And he said, they're not the same thing. He has found in his laboratory, he said, that a person can think a thought without involving his brain. My students do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> what Eccles meant was that it is possible to show in the laboratory that a person can start thinking without brain waves beginning in his head. And he is therefore convinced, he told his audience, that the brain is physical and the mind is immortal. That it is not physical and can therefore not die. And that it is the real person. It is his soul. No scientist on earth, Eccles told that audience, can explain why a person gets up in the morning and remembers that he is the same person as the one who went to sleep the night before. There is no physical explanation. You don't remember that. <laughs> that much for the frontiers of science, because I do want to get to some statements by leading scientists that make the heart of the Christian glad. It is not true, it is not true that the majority of scientists in the world are unbelievers. Only two of all the people I interviewed at random told me that they were atheists. The others are believers. That, I believe, is a larger percentage of believers than in the population generally. I think it is easier for a physicist to believe in God than someone who does not know physics, because he knows the limitations of knowledge better than other people do. And yet how unfortunate it is 
that the unbelievers are the ones who make the most noise in the field of science. You may not have heard of this document, but it is an awesome and fearful thing. It's called the Humanist Manifesto. The Humanist Manifesto, which was recently put out and revised, has been signed by some very famous people. And on the back page is a blank for more signatures. What they want is a million signatures in as quick a time as possible. Here are some of the signers. Well, before I read the names of these, let me tell you what a humanist is, according to the Humanist Manifesto, because I think very sincerely that it is humanism that is our biggest enemy in this country today, in the schools, in the pulpits, wherever it appears. Humanism is directly opposed to the Word of God. A humanist, it says, is a person who believes that faith in the prayer-hearing God, assumed to love and care for persons, to hear and understand their prayers, and to be able to do something about them, is an unproved and outmoded faith. Reasonable minds look to other means for survival. We believe that traditional, dogmatic, or authoritarian religions that place revelation, God, ritual, or creed above human needs do a disservice to the human species. We find insufficient evidence for belief in the existence of the supernatural. It is either meaningless or irrelevant to the question of the survival of the human race. We can discover no divine purpose for the human species. While there is much that we do not know, humans are responsible for what we are or will become. No God will save us. We must save ourselves. Promises of immortal salvation or fear of eternal damnation are illusory and harmful. The human species, and it goes on and on, it talks about the right to suicide <coughs> that should not be taken from people. It talks about all kinds of other things that a humanist espouses. The name. The person who has probably written more books on science than any other human being. Isaac Asimov. Paul Landry. B.F. Skinner. Harvard University. The man who probably shaped educational theory for the last 10 or 20 years. Dozens and dozens of professors of science, philosophy, and religion around the country. Frankly, how many of these people that you see and that you read and who shape our textbooks are humanists? A humanist gets very emotional when you present a theological idea. I was at Princeton a few months ago when they had a debate between an anthropologist in the gymnasium on Saturday night and a creation scientist, a person who was a Christian and believed in the creation of the world by an act of God. For three hours, these two men went at it. And increasingly, as the evening wore on, the 2,000 students who were assembled there came more and more to the side of the believer and applauded his research and 
you could tell by the pall of silence that fell in many cases how they felt that the anthropologist, who was a humanist, was not prepared, that he was not on firm ground. Are the majority of scientists really believers or only the top ones? I asked one of them that. How come that so many of you people I speak to say we are believers in God? We believe in the limits of the scientific method. Were you that way in your way up, or can you only appear, can you afford to be humble now that you're on top? One of the most exciting interviews I had to help answer that question is Margaret Mead. We were on a ship together in the South Pacific watching an eclipse. And I asked her, Dr. Mead, I've heard you lecture on shipboard during the last week or two. I want to ask you, do you believe in God? And she said, it's interesting that you should ask me that question. We were shortly before her death. She said, you might say that I'm a post-ethnostic. She said, what is a post-ethnostic? She said, that's a person who used to be an agnostic, but is now a Christian. She said, I've studied peoples all over the world. I have seen the necessity of religion in civilizations all over the world. And I finally have come to the conclusion that a belief in God is necessary for human survival. And so I've joined the Christian church. So there are people I say that to who don't believe it. We were the only two on the deck there. I can't prove it. I didn't have my handy tape recorder. They said, we don't believe that because we read her books and she's not a Christian in there. Could be very true. But that's what she said near the end of her life. That's not too different from another instance in history where the same thing happened. I got a phone call one time from the superintendent of schools of Texas. And he said, we have just looked at your astronomy text and we'd like to use it, but we can't. Why not? Because you mentioned God. He said, so what's wrong with God in Texas? And he said, God cannot be mentioned in a textbook that is used in a public school in Texas because it's against the law. He said, well, I'm paraphrasing Isaac Newton. I'm sorry, I'm quoting Isaac Newton. I'm telling what Isaac Newton said about God. But what did Isaac Newton say about God? Isaac Newton said at the end of his life when he was asked what his greatest discovery was, calculus, falling bodies, gravitation, optics, laws of motion, inertia, acceleration. Which of these was your greatest discovery? He said, my greatest discovery was that Jesus Christ is my personal Savior. Now, in what school have you heard that? In what textbook have you read that? What a pity that humanists have prevailed on our state legislatures to the point where you can't say that in a public school. I was banned from a speech in a public high school on Long Island because I sat there. I have an agent who books these addresses in the school, and she called up one day and said, you've just been canceled at this high school. Why? Because the principal heard that in the last one, you talked about God in connection with Isaac Newton, and they already have enough controversy in their school, they don't need that to you. 
which of course made it all the more popular in the other schools because now you got advertisers being banned on Long Island. That was more important to Isaac Newton than his discovery of gravitation. In fact, after the age of 30 till he got to be 80, Newton wrote mainly religious books, not books on physics. When we divorce the person from his science, we're doing the scientist a disservice. It's exactly what Satan would like to see. The idea that we can obtain everything through the human mind. When the scientists who do the work themselves say, no, here's the limit. Here's the limit. We cannot answer any questions beyond this. For that, you need God. Walter Bratton told me, the man who invented the transistor for Bell Telephone Laboratories and got the Nobel Prize for it. Tell your students, he said, that science can never answer the question, why? It can only answer the question, how? Why will always be a question that only God can answer. Because a why question does not deal with theories. A why question deals with causes and with beliefs. And when you believe it, it's absolute. You don't have to believe how big the universe is. Whatever it is, that's how it is, whether you believe it or not. But what you believe in your heart about God, that is absolute. And that God alone can put there. You can't argue it into somebody. You can hold a gun at his head and say, do you believe in God? Of course. <laughs> but God puts the faith there. Unfortunately, the forces of humanism, as I mentioned before, are getting to the church itself. I was at a convention at MIT recently where 500 scientists from around the world had gathered at the invitation of the World Council of Churches to discuss the connection between science and faith. One after the other, I heard people from around the world get up and say what we need in the world of science is Christian faith. We need the guidance of the church to make decisions about what to research, how to research it, where to stop, what to allow. From that I went to a church conference where a thousand Christians had gathered to hear how the Spirit of the Lord moves in the church. And in a room about this size where a professor of theology was holding forth, a woman got up and asked the question in the audience, Professor, why is it that in a recent Sunday school convention the speaker told us not to teach our children the song anymore, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And the answer was, from him and his colleagues standing there, because we no longer in modern theological research believe that the Bible is the word of God. That woman was stunned. I couldn't stand this any longer. I told him, Professor, I just came from a conference of scientists where I found more faith than in that statement of yours. In fact, the phrase he used was, we no longer worship a paper pope. 
like we used to when we believed that the Bible was the inspired word of God. It's a battle for the Bible. I don't know whether you've seen that one. The battle for the Bible. That takes you through one church after the other to show how the belief in the inspired word of God has been abandoned by theologians in those churches. What can we do about that? We can pray for God to use his power to overcome the powers of humanism. As I read the Bible, I see that God has three kinds of power. He has the power of creation and preservation of the universe, the quarks, the light years of the universe, all there. What power? A tremendous power is holding those quarks together so that we can't get them apart. Every scientist who is honest sees that power. Einstein said, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. The fact that we can study it proves to him that God exists. The second kind of power does not come by looking at the universe, though. That comes by revelation from God himself, the power of our redemption through Christ, the power that performs miracles, miracles of healing, miracles of faith that cannot be performed with Adam's measures. One of the most exciting examples of that kind of miracle that comes through faith is the story of a young man at a college where humanism was supreme where the professors, and particularly the one in chemistry, would have an annual lecture at the Thanksgiving time before vacation to show the students that there is no God. And he would take a bottle at the end of his lecture and say, I'm going to drop this bottle on the concrete floor. And if there are any believers in here who think that their prayers can keep that bottle from breaking, start praying. We'll bow our heads while you pray. Because your prayers and your friends' prayers, nobody's prayers, are going to keep that bottle from breaking. So the students would go home hanging their heads. What a triumph for Satan. Till one year, a young man came to that university and said, I'm going to be in Dr. Jones's class, and I hear that he does this address every Thanksgiving about prayer and its uselessness. That's true. Well, I want you to pray for me, he said, because when he does that again, I want to challenge him. So the day came. The class is assembled. The man stands with the bottle, and he said, who wants to pray? And the young man got up and said, Professor, I'd like to pray. Well, isn't that interesting? A fellow who wants to pray that the laws of science will be laid aside and this bottle won't break. So the young man prayed, Dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you that you have heard me. For your honor and Christ's name, don't let this flask break. Amen. The man let the bottle go. It did not go directly to the floor. It hit his shoe and rolled over and did not break.
The professor does not give that lecture anymore. <laughs> now you say, was he tempting God? He was witnessing for his faith. Faith that has no connection, you see, with any scientific research, but only to the necessity that he must witness for his personal faith. Whatever God would do was all right with him. And he influenced more people than perhaps he did in many, many years afterward. The third kind of power that I see in the Bible is the power of the <coughs> Holy Spirit. The one that empowers people to live their Christian lives. There's a story of a fellow who sent his son to college and said, Now, son, when you get there, beware. There will be many forces trying to destroy your faith. Be careful. A month later, a letter came back and said, Dad, after he asked for money, nothing to worry about. Nobody here knows that I'm a Christian. <laughs> Folks, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as nobody knowing that we're Christians. I remember sitting in the desert in Africa during an eclipse expedition at Lake Rudolph up by the leaky excavations. One week in the Sahara, the largest safari they told me that had ever been mounted there. A hundred of us with 80 natives. The first night, it's 100 degrees, there's a 50 mile an hour wind blowing sand in your face, and you wonder why in the world am I here in the first place. A great big Messiah comes up, sticks his spear in the sand in front of our tent, and says, me, Christian. Me too, me too, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> and the second thought that came to me was, why did he have to say that to me? All these years, I'm going to Mission Fest and putting a few bucks in the collection to send missionaries over there. I'm the good guy he Christian. He didn't care who I was, whether I agreed with him or not. He Christian. <coughs> We're still corresponding with each other. I'm always refreshed by his simple expression of faith from East Africa. We have many conservation laws in science. Conservation of energy, conservation of this, conservation of that. The Christian has a conservation law about his faith. Use it or lose it. Like I like to tell my students before an exam, praise the Lord and pass the examination. Thank you very much. Let's hear some guesses. <coughs> Lightning. Fork. Lightning. <laughs> Quarks. Um, Root system. Root system. Electricity. Is it etching on plastic? Etching on plastic. Looks like possibly uh, an optic neuron. 
Just listening to you, there's nothing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I saw some. <laughs> Interesting. We're very close to Brookhaven here, and I got several guesses that have to do with electricity. That's what it is. And yet it has the same features in common that a root system does, a lead, a nerve system, because the universal law of nature is, that there is such a thing as a law, that things take the line of least resistance, whether it be the body, a river, electricity. This is frozen lightning. It's called the Lichtenberg figure, where somebody took a piece of plastic, charged it with 2 million volts in a machine, and then tapped it with a hole he found there. And the electrons grouped together and ran out and left a contrail, like an airplane. It is an etching. It is an etching. <laughs> so like it, you should tell a student that's not been charging you wrong right here. <laughs> but any other comments? Now, I did not take a great deal of time, otherwise you'd be here for quite a while, to tell you the individual testimonies of various scientists. I told you about Margaret Mead, about two of whom People were atheists. Carl Sagan told me he was a humanist. <coughs> I can tell you that Carl Sagan does not represent the scientific community in that respect. In fact, he's almost defensive about his humanism when he comes on TV and starts out by saying the cosmos is all there ever was and all there is and all there ever will be. That's a statement of faith. That's his faith. And he says, This is my personal journey. And if you accept it as that, <coughs> and keep the beliefs of Carl Sagan out of the science of Carl Sagan, then you can learn a great deal. But other men of equal renown, for instance, J. Allen Hynek, an astronomer of equal ability to Sagan at Northwestern University, told me, and he's the UFO expert of the world, he's responsible for the movie The Third Kind, he's in it, and he told me, Science goes so far. And to lead a complete life, he said, I use science and I use much more. I build my house, he said, of life with visible bricks and invisible bricks. And the invisible bricks include things like a belief in the spirit and in angels and in articles of faith. And that does not conflict with anything in the visible bricks. That's a much more complete philosophy of life than a person who relies only on his own mind and brain. One of the two atheists I spoke to was in Oslo. And he said when I walked into his office, Dr. Rittberg, whose father made the Rittberg constant, if any of you are into chemistry, the Rittberg constant was named after his father. He said, I want to tell you, before you start asking me any questions, that I'm an atheist. And I wondered, why does he say that? Why does he feel it necessary to say that to me? And I said, well, I didn't really ask you what you were. I haven't started yet. He said, well, I want to tell you that a Christian can go home at night and pray and go to sleep. I can't do that. He said, I go home and I have to worry about everything. And if I came home tonight, he said, and found my wife and family murdered, I go out of my mind. I have nothing beyond my own <coughs> reasoning power. And I said, Dr. Rickford, why don't you believe in God? He said, because 
I can. And what a sudden reminder that was, as the Bible says, that we do not by our own reason assent from faith. We don't convince ourselves into its necessity. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. So what can we do for poor Dr. Richard? Pray. Pray. And the God who can keep the bottle off the floor and split the cloth and put faith in him can just as easily turn it in. And maybe he's waiting for some of us to ask that we can do that. Any other questions or comments? Um, you can see I brought some copies of this report. I'm not here to sell books, but if you're interested in the study, it's not out of print because the second edition is in Dodger. I have some copies that you can get for yourself. Well, plastic is a dielectric, and uh, just like the insulator in a transformer or in a capacitor in a television set, where you can build up uh, a charge without the electron moving, like a Leiden jar or a plasma. You can put a charge on it and temporarily, at least before it leaks into the atmosphere, have a potential energy. You put opposite poles with a Sandograph machine on here. And at a certain point, this will break down, of course. If you put too much on, there will be an arc and the discharge. But if you stop just before that, then it will have you in the same point for a short time. You can charge it a doorknob. You can short it out a little Well, when you hit it, you're providing, uh, by compression, of the material briefly as the wave travels through there. Right. Electrons, as the dielectric breaks down, you have to get it just high enough. In fact, many spark foundries and Geiger counters work on this principle. So you